Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Corey Clark, a social psychologist whose research focuses on how social motivations influence human judgment and empirical beliefs. Corey earned her PhD in Social and Personality Psychology and Quantitative Methods from the University of California, Irvine. She also worked as a postdoctoral scholar at University at Buffalo and Florida State University, an assistant professor at Durham University in the United Kingdom, and served as the Director of Academic Engagement for Heterodox Academy. Currently, she is a visiting faculty scholar in the Wharton School and School of Arts and Sciences at University of Pennsylvania, and is the director of the Adversarial Collaboration Project, an initiative which encourages scholars with clashing theoretical or ideological views to collaborate and engage in best practices for resolving scientific disputes. Corey's research provides some significant contributions to the area of motivated reasoning, which is the idea that the way we select and evaluate information can be influenced by our motivations or goals. One of my takeaways was that we need to be cautious when viewing ourselves as objective thinkers and critically examine how our political beliefs might bias how we process information. This bias appears to be automatic and unconscious, which means we are likely engaging in biased thinking without even knowing it. Political worldviews should best be viewed as lenses that alter the way we interpret news stories, facts, and numeric data, and that these lenses can often stifle curiosity and our ability to update our beliefs based on new information. Another takeaway was that individuals are surprisingly sensitive to picking up ulterior motives on the part of information-providing institutions. It seems as though, regardless of political affiliation, we hold governmental, mass media, and academic institutions to high standards, and we will adjust our faith in these institutions when we see them politicizing an issue, even if the bias is in our favor. My discussion with Corey forced me to take stock of some of my strongly held beliefs and look for ways that my political worldview might be potentially influencing views on more specific social and economic issues. I hope after listening that you will be inspired to do the same. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Corey Clark. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, Corey does a lot of research uh, sort of under the umbrella of politics and psychology. Um, you might say it's sort of the overlap between cognition and politics. Um, what spawned your interest in this uh, in this overlap? Um, so actually, when I first started grad school, my advisor asked if I wanted to be like his politics grad student. And I was like, no chance, <laughs> not interested. Um, I think I became interested in it over time, really as a result of doing some research related to political psychology and then seeing um, the reactions towards that research among some of my peers and being like, wow, this you know, our political commitments aren't just impacting how everyday people think about the world and how they process information, but it affects how scientists uh, think about the world and how they process information. So, you know, psychologists always studying how everyday people are sort of biased and, um, you know, they strategically search for certain kinds of information and are hypercritical of information they don't like. Um, and at some point, uh, the longer you're in academia, you realize that you know, scientists are exactly the same and they're also resistant to scientific evidence that opposes the positions they want to believe and are really credulous toward information they want to believe. Um, and so I think it was really seeing that same kind of politically motivated cognition among my scholarly peers that made me finally become interested in the topic because 
it affects science and what we publish and what we believe is true and what we tell people is true. Um, and I care a lot about that side of things, like who decides what is true. Um, yeah. And, and, well, and, and how accurate long, is that? <laughs> well, and, and for a long time, uh, I know at least when I was in grad school, there was a, uh, there was a feeling of, of the, academia is completely unbiased. Like this is the, everything that we are talking about is, uh, is focused on truth and objectivity. And there was sort of a, I don't know, maybe the blinders were on to uh, political bias seeping in. I don't know if that was, if that's been your impression. Yeah. I mean, I should say plenty of scientists will acknowledge the fact that we're just human and thus are we're vulnerable to the same kind of cognitive tendencies as everyday people, but some are resistant and they seem to think, well, you know, we're scientists. We care more about the true, the truth. We have this toolkit that helps us discover the truth better than other people. And so we're better. Like the things that yeah. we believe are true are better than what everyday people think are true. Like we have the right methods um, and the right procedures. Um, and to a degree, that's true, but also to a degree, it's just like a toolkit that helps us construct reality and then convince other people that the things we want to be true are true. And it's a really simple problem to see, because if you just look at the published literature in almost any discipline, you're going to see tons of contradictions. Scholar A says X is, X is true. Scholar B says X is false. This is there are so many contradictions in the public literature. They can't possibly all be correct. Um, so we know something's going on, right? Some of it's motivated reasoning. Some of it might just be like mistakes that have been made. But when scholars like become associated with a particular theory, they tend to want to cling on to that theory and continue to tell the world that it's true because, you know, that's what they care about and that's how they get status and that's how they got their fancy job. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if we can say whether scientists are more likely to come to the truth than everyday people given the way they process information but at minimum we have to accept that you know scientists have human cognition uh right. so we're going to process information the way humans process information for the most part so we're going to uh throughout this conversation probably go in and out of talking about uh science beliefs as they apply to academics as they apply to the general public and we're definitely going to spend some time talking about uh, uh, politics and cognition. Why don't we start by uh, by looking at some some of the broader views that already exist in terms of political psychology? So I, I wanted to hear your take on uh, Jonathan Haidt's work. So Jonathan Haidt, uh, social psychologist, and he's argued in the past that the interesting differences between people of different political affiliation is their their differences in values that there's a lot of explanatory power if you look at conservatives they they uh, are more likely to value uh things like loyalty authority and if you look at liberals they're more likely to value uh uh, care and fairness. And, and those are the values that he chose to to use in his examination. Um, to what extent do you think that's a reasonable way to describe differences between people that identify different uh, as different politically? Well, so here's a really good example of what I was just talking about with the contradictory information in science. I personally am pretty skeptical of moral foundations theory. Um, a lot of other people have been skeptical of it for different reasons. Like Kurt Gray has argued that, you know, all of these so-called moral foundations are just harm based foundations and different people care about harms towards different groups of people. Other people have said there are different foundations. Um, I think I've become over time skeptical of a lot of these theories that claim that there are big, consistent psychological differences between people on the left and right. Um, because, you know, they're both just groups of people. So take, for example, one of the moral foundations is um, like concern for your in-group. And they say, or Height and Jesse Graham and colleagues would say that conservatives uh, prioritize in-group loyalty more than people on the left. Um, but if you look at 
for example, studies of in-group biases, like do people evaluate information that supports the in-group more than the out-group um, as higher quality information, both liberals and conservatives do that to virtually identical degrees. So if conservatives were truly more in-group loyal, they value that more, you would expect them to show higher biases there, and they don't. Um, and the moral foundations questionnaire is just, just one questionnaire and it has a, a small subset of items and you could easily swap out those items for other items and those differences might go away. So I'm personally not persuaded by moral foundations theory, but uh, if you looked at the literature, you would see a lot of critics who would criticize it for a lot of different reasons and a lot of people who actually think it does work pretty well. So, so, so you noted that there were similar in-group, that there was similar amounts of in-group bias. If you're looking at uh, liberals versus conservatives. You made me think if there's sort of a uh, sort of a feedback loop going on with these groups, sort of uh, let's to make it an, into an analogy, like a cops and robbers scenario. So let's say that there's a lot of in-group bias amongst criminals so that they want mm -hmm. to avoid, be, you know, getting arrested. And because of that, as you know, that coming first, then you have law enforcement who, in response, are trying to, you know, protect themselves and then and it, it amps up their in-group bias. Now, mm -hmm. I'm making a ton of assumptions here. <laughs> Obviously, you know, th there's a chicken or the egg thing. But uh, do you think that is it fair to say that for perhaps liberals that that there's a response to something that conservatives are doing or, or a behavior that they're seeing in conservatives? Yeah, I think it's almost certainly true that both liberals and conservatives are responsive to each other's behavior and might change the rules of the game <laughs> so as to keep up. Uh, so another example is uh, with the moral foundations is um one of this one of the uh, foundations is obedience to authority. And this is another one where if you use the scale, you're going to find consistent differences. But other scholars have created different scales of authoritarianism. And people used to think that people on the right were more authoritarian and wanted people to be more obedient to authority figures like on their side, like maybe religious leaders. Other scholars just very recently have come along. Like, well, if we just change who the authority figures are then liberals are just as authoritarian as people on the right. It's just that they want people to defer to different authority figures. Um, but it's hard to say, like, yeah, like the chicken or the egg problem, like, is one group doing this first and the other group's responding? If so, I don't think anybody would know who is doing it first. And it's and it's all just kind of part of intergroup conflict dynamics, you know, like if if you're going to build a bomb, then I guess I have to build a bomb, too. Right. right. Um, yeah. In those cases, you can maybe see who who did it first, but not with things like psychological tendencies that are prone toward, you know, in-group loyalty behavior and like obedience toward our authority figures, you know, uh, so it'd be hard to say. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the term motivated reasoning earlier and. Uh, that line of research uh, was very hot uh, when I was in grad school. Uh, so we're talking the late 2000s. Um, and back then, you know, the there were a few papers that came out that suggested uh, specifically that conservatives exhibited more, uh, the term was cognitive rigidity. Mm -hmm. Um uh, and and it, which sort of relates uh, it's sim a related construct to motivated reasoning it's not the same thing um uh could you talk a little bit about the evidence uh for this uh this area of research mm -hmm. yeah so it used to be i well, I don't want to say it was uncontested. It was contested, but I think it was generally accepted that people on the political right were more cognitively rigid. This is measured so many different ways in the literature. Sometimes it's like personality scales. Um, the problem is a lot of times these personality scales were written by psychology professors who tend who tend to lean left. So they might be sort of better able to see the topics for which conservatives would be particularly rigid. Um, but the idea was that, you know, conservatives are more resistant to information that's going to challenge their beliefs. Um, 
they're more like sort of stubborn, I suppose, in their beliefs. Um, and there's been a lot of research showing that that's true. Um, but there's also a lot of research showing that it's not true. And actually, I just just recently completed an adversarial collaboration on this project with um, some people who are proponents of the rigidity of the right, which is the idea that people on the right are more cognitively rigid, people who are on the rigidity of the extreme, which is the idea that left and right, whatever similar or not, it's really the extremists. So far leftists and far rightists are rigid. And then people in the sort of what's called the symmetry camp, which is like, no, people on the right and left are more or less the same amount of rigid. Um, and when we got everyone together, we went through all of the ways people have conceptualized rigidity in the psychological literature. And we decided the only one that we thought was sort of like a fair measure was whether people update their beliefs in response to evidence that contradicts their, their existing beliefs. So we used that. And then we looked at people's willingness to update their beliefs on a bunch of different um, topics. Uh, and we just found a, lot, a bunch of mixed evidence. Like sometimes people on the right were more rigid, some people on the left, sometimes people on the left were more rigid, sometimes there were no differences, sometimes extremists were more rigid. They tended to be, but they weren't always. Um, so when when you have this much contradictory information, as a psychologist, you kind of have to say, look, <laughs> maybe what's going on is we need to stop making such broad proclamations about who's more rigid or say these people are exactly the same, because we can't know if they're exactly the same, because we can never measure all contexts. And we also don't have a way to say, like, on whole, this one group is more rigid or not. And so, you know, scientists have these tendency to make these really broad claims, but they're often unwarranted. And the truth is often much less impressive and more nuanced <laughs> than the yeah. headlines that get published, you know, in the New York Times or whatever. Yeah. Could you uh, talk more about the difficulties that go into measuring these constructs? Because it seems as though, like, if you look at uh, one example of how conservatives and liberals might differ in terms of rigidity, um, you could say that, you know, the source of the rigidity might be different. Um, that, uh, that, you know, conservatives are, uh, you know, motivated by perhaps like a, a religious upbringing. And that's, um, you know, you're not supposed to question religion. And so that may or may not lead to rigid thinking because you don't, you're not supposed to question the Bible, for example. So as that, take that as, as one example, uh, on the left, it, it, you know, you might not have those constraints, but, uh, we know that today there's some complex energy around, uh, around race, around, uh, gender, uh, and you see, what I would consider rigid thinking, if you look at some certain specific examples, I don't want to get in, in, into the to weeds there. Um, but could you talk a little bit about why it's so difficult to say that one group is more rigid than than another? Yeah, I think I think the example you gave is actually a pretty good one, because so so I have some studies looking at you know, bias among people on the left, which is often a topic that doesn't get studied much because psychology professors tend to be on the left. So they're not interested in making their own group look biased. But that's it, precisely the issues you mentioned. It's things they're, they're, you know, motivated to be sort of egalitarian and to believe all people are exactly the same. So all groups, all racial groups are the same. Men and women are exactly the same. Um, and there was this one interesting study that came out a year or two ago. Um, where they presented people with, uh, I think it must have been a description of a scientific study that found that men and women evolve different psychological characteristics. So this is not just that men and women, you know, look different on average, they have different bodies or whatever, but that their brains are also different. And thus men and women have on average different personalities. Um, and they found similar amounts of resistance on the left and the right, but on the right, it was driven by, um, uh, sort of resistance to the idea that evolution had happened and that men and women would have evolved differences. And on the left, it was driven by the fact that people on the left don't want to say that men and women are different at all, uh -huh. even though they accept evolution. So, you know, different motivations underlying the same resistance to a piece of information, which is kind of entertaining. But I think the reason it's difficult to compare is because 
it's hard to quantify, you know, like how big is this? Well, first, it's hard to say what's true, right? So we can say, oh, this, this, you know, people would say people on the right are resistant to, uh, you know, the truth about climate change. It's like, well, we have to talk, what are we talking about climate change? Are we talking about the fact that it's happening? Are we talking about the fact that it's caused by human activity? Are we talking about the fact that it's going to be a disaster, that the temperature is going to go up X or X degrees or whatever, like, it, it depends on what fact we're talking about. And then we have to say, what is the actual scientific consensus and how confident should we be given that confidence? Um, so the fact that the truth is a moving target makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it would just be, it would just be, I think, essentially impossible to test all ways in which people could be rigid and then try to come up with a number put, slap it on people on the left and right and then compare the two um maybe we'll do that one day <laughs> i don't even know if it'd be a good use of our time to try to do it though um yeah so well, in the I, meantime I also... i'm happy to say you know we don't really know and that's fine <laughs> both sure. groups do it sometimes oh and i was also thinking how and you know if we're looking at how there's a difference in thinking uh, I'm I'm curious if there's a difference in thinking that relates to the idea of being progressive versus conservative. Conservative. So, generally speaking, progressives are uh, a lot of their values are driven by what needs to change. We are pr- progressing, so you have a lot of attitudes towards we need to change or forward issue A, B, and C. We mm-hmm. need to in, you know expand gay rights. We need to uh expand the safety net for people uh that are struggling financially um and then conservatives generally speaking the role is to let's find things that work and hold on to them like the sort of really broad definition of conservative versus progressive um do you does any part of you think that uh that it's sort of a uh, just a bias in how how you approach government uh, more so than any one specific, you know, cognitive feature. Yeah. So I, first I want to say that people on the left and right aren't different on average in any ways. There are some fairly replicable differences. Uh, I believe it's pretty consistent that conservatives score higher on conscientiousness and liberals score higher on openness on the big five, which is like Mm -hmm. the most popular personality thing. I don't think the differences are very big, but they're there. Um, When it comes to what you're talking about, this resistance to change that's another one that people for a long time thought was more characteristic of people on the right that one's also been challenged and just said like if the status quo favors your own side then you like the status quo where if if changing favors what you want then you're more in favor of changing i don't have a strong opinion on that one because certainly it appears to be part of like the sort of conservative philosophy that's like you know we should be cautious if we're going to make any changes, if the system's working okay, because it could get much worse, you know? So like, cause we should be changing things slowly and not rapidly. And maybe progressives are more like, no, things are terrible. We need to change them immediately yeah. and as big as possible. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but. Um... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of liberal friends of mine are frustrated with the rate of change. They don't, yeah. they don't, they don't like that, that, that slow process, which I mean, I would argue that it's, you know, it has to be that slow, but yeah. Right. But yeah, the question is, is it that they're only frustrated with that in the couple of domains for the ones that are headed the direction that they want them to go? Um, But yeah, I think that's another complicated one where there may be a personality difference there. Um, And there certainly seems to be one in the philosophy, but then there's also the comparison between should we be looking at like conservative philosophers and progressive philosophers or should we looking at everyday people and then it gets much more complicated because everyday people are conservative for so many different reasons like maybe it's a resistance to change but maybe they're religious and you know they care a lot about the abortion issue um so it gets harder when you're trying to compare these broad groups of people that have self-selected into labeling themselves liberal or conservative for one of who knows how many potential reasons it could just even be and oh, my friends say they're that so i'm that too <laughs> yeah so just to recap 
so it's it's your position that there there's a, a a massive amount of exaggerating with respect to consistent differences in what let's just say cognitive mechanisms mm -hmm. uh, if if that is the case why is it that why is it that so many people would immediately say of course they're they think differently uh, i think there are a lot of reasons one would just be psychology has spent so much time looking for these reasons and we've published <laughs> a lot of them so if you keep up with the literature you'd be like oh that makes so much sense in the case yeah, of moral you pick up an article yeah <laughs> if yeah I, I remember back in the day when when uh, the, the some of this motivated reasoning was stuff was coming out it's like you see it and it's like that uh, that checks out, you know, the, yeah. the classic confirma confirmation bias that hey, I, I knew all along. And then, you know, you hold on to those those little nuggets of information and they don't you know, they don't necessarily get revised or updated. No. Yeah. You don't follow up to see. Did anyone challenge this one year later? <laughs> and what did those studies look like? But I do think I mean, I think motivated reasoning comes back into it because one one thing that I found sort of entertaining about the moral foundations when that was really hot back when I was in grad school was people on the left seemed to love it because they were like, oh, we are the ones with the real foundations. We don't have these fake ones that shouldn't matter, like in-group loyalty and authority and purity. Um, so they were like, we have the better foundations. Whereas people on the right were like, oh, we're more moral because we have more foundations and people on the left are these immoral people who don't even care about, you know, loyalty or being respectful to your elders, like these kinds of things. So I feel like part of the popularity of that theory could be because it made both people on the left and right feel superior to one another. That's the perfect yeah. theory. <laughs> like if yeah. I could come up with a theory that that everyone loved, uh, that would be that would be good for business, I think. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of that. You know, people want to explain how other people can view the world so differently. Um, and so I think we're always and I think this is true of everything. You know, we have a psychological need to explain things. So if we come up with a theory that makes sense to us, it's often quite appealing, even if it potentially is incorrect or we have no way of even validating whether it's correct or not. Um, do you think that there's any credence to the argument that many people make, uh, specifically on the left, they'll say, well, if you look at the utopia that conservatives want to create, it would be it would be terrible. It would be, um, you know, we wouldn't be taking care of poor people. Uh, we'd always be at war, big military industrial complex, um, anything outside of, uh, you know, uh, sort of a religious form of, of morality would you'd be considered bad uh, versus a liberal utopia. You know, what's the worst that could happen? You know, everyone has food. Uh, it might not be the perfect capitalistic version of of taking care of everyone uh, or, a, a you know, a, a safety net, but um, it would the, the utopias would be different, according to the the left argument. Do you think there's anything to that? Um, well, it's a good question, because I think the utopia for both sides would be. So I think like for a conservative, it wouldn't be we don't take care of poor people. It would be there wouldn't be poor people because everyone would have a job and they would have figured out how to care for themselves. And so rather than, yeah. you know, some people having to work harder and create more capital and then redistributing that to people, people would have skills and they would have jobs and they would make their own money and take care of themselves. So I don't think the the conservative utopia is there would be homeless people on the street. And nobody would care about them. It would be there wouldn't be homeless people. They would be working um, and not. And that's obviously not uh, I'm exaggerating again because Hyper, I don't think yeah, anyone simply, thinks there would be no homeless people. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I think in both cases, like the goals, I think, are for most or all people to be happy and healthy and thriving and, you know, crime to be low and hunger to be low. So in that sense, the utopias are very similar. Um, I think the real difference is the, the differences in the beliefs of how we get there. Um, but 
maybe there would be some there would be some differences as you as you noted like probably for some conservatives they would want you know everyone to be christian or something whereas progressives wouldn't care about that at all um and then and and conservatives would be more okay with there being a certain amount of income inequality whereas liberals might be like everyone makes the same amount or at least the difference is very very small whereas conservatives would be like well of some rich people and some middle class people and few poor people ideally um so. Well, and one of those that, yeah, the differences that I constantly think about is what works in a small community versus what would work for a country. Like mm -hmm. it, it does, it, it seems as though um, this sort of, um, you know, if you look at a small family, parents give their children resources and they don't really expect a ton in return it's not like they if they don't do their chores they don't eat um mm -hmm. the this kind of selflessness and uh the some of the foundations that would underlie socialism works really well in a very very small setting mm -hmm. and then the real question seems to me uh is what happens if you apply it at a country level that's where there seems to be a lot of disagreement yeah, what happens if you apply it and even can you apply it? Because, yeah, you're dealing with, you know, some people feel like they're paying too high of taxes and those that money is getting taken and it's going where? They don't even know who's getting it. You know, what is it paying for? Is it helping my community or, you know, is it going to another state and helping people there? Um, I think, uh, I think yeah like there there's a debate about how well you can achieve that kind of we're all going to take care of each other um attitude and go from a community where everyone kind of knows each other and can kind of keep track of each other and kind of knows where the money's going you know it's going to the local school okay everyone supports schools so that's cool um and then you you make that much larger and now people have absolutely no idea who they're helping or where their money's going and then maybe understandably they're a little bit more uh resistant to taking care of other people because they're strangers right. um yeah so there's a question of you know is that something that can work with human psychology is that something that humans on average are going to be okay with and if they're not should we accept that or should we push them to be okay with it? Um, where progressives might be more like, well, too bad. I don't care if you're not okay with it. That's how it's going to be. Whereas conservatives might be like, well, we have to deal with the fact that this is a normal human reaction um, and, you know, come up with a better solution, perhaps, uh, maybe more localism. So let's pivot a little, a little bit and uh, talk about your work on science beliefs, which is... Uh, it's it's very much related to what we're talking about, but you look at some very specific and interesting questions in this area. Uh, first, you have some work looking at uh, specifically uh, politicization. I knew I was going to screw up this word. Politicization. Politicization. Uh, politicization. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. There's there's. I may or may not have made that word up, so it's yeah. fine if you don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, m making public issues political or making mm -hmm. issues uh, that are normally, uh, should be discussed in an objective way, adding a little sprinkling of politics to them. Um, could you talk about that work and, and what we need to know about that? Yeah. So that's one of my favorite projects I'm working on right now. Um, we have six studies now, and we've looked at this across 40 different institutions. We tried to pick important ones like the Supreme Court you know, criminal justice system, um, the World Health Organization, professors, scientists, um, uh, local business people. Um, those are some of the example institutions. But we also look at this among academic disciplines. So like economists, public health scholars, psychologists, physicists. Um, and we looked at how perceptions that these institutions and disciplines perceptions that they allow political values to influence the work they do. That's essentially how we operationalize what we're calling politicization. It's the view that political values impact their work. Um, as people view institutions as more politicized, they trust them less. They're less willing to support them, to provide financial support for them, to listen to their expertise. Um, and we 
tested this also experimentally. So in two studies, we had we made up these organizations. One of them was like Economics Professors of America, and the other one was Get Outdoors Park Rangers of America or something like that. And in one case, the group endorsed Biden or Trump for president in the 2020 election. And the other case, they had this was the economics professors. They had like a senator who was a Republican or Democratic speak at their conference and talk about how political values should influence the research agenda of this group. And we see that when these institutions that are supposedly doing something else, you know, they're protecting our national parks or they're teaching people about economics. Um, when they get involved in politics, trust towards them goes down and support of them goes down. And we see this among people on both the left and the right. So this was what was most interesting to us because we see even among left-leaning people, if a left-leaning institution, say, you know, uh, academics, for example, or journalists who lean left, if they get involved in politics and they support left-leaning politics, left-leaning people still trust them less. And we see the same thing for the right-leaning people. So when a right-leaning institution tries to support right-leaning politics in their work, right-leaning people trust them less. Um, That's surprising. Uh, it, it, it is surprising because yeah. <laughs> you would think, well, why wouldn't people want these powerful institutions supporting their own ideological agenda? That would work out in their favor. But people seem to really not like this. Uh, they not really don't like it when it goes against them, but they even don't like it when it supports them. Do you think they do you think that they don't like it because it weakens their position in the sense that we, we can't use this information like uh, uh, because because I can't use this information against my opponent because they're compromised or they don't like it for some other reason. Right. Well, so I don't know what the reason is, but I thought of two main reasons. One is maybe more wholesome <laughs> and the other is maybe more uh, uh, cynical, yeah. a, little, a little more cynical. So one would be that people think what these institutions are doing is really important. So people think science is important. They think the criminal justice system is really important and they don't want those institutions alienating a large chunk of the population because they want us all to cooperate when, you know, we're in a situation where we need to be listening to the authorities. <laughs> like we need to be able to trust scientists during COVID. Wouldn't have been great if we all could have trust scientists, although that ended up that had its own problems. But mm -hmm. it's a good example anyway. Um so it might be that people think these institutions are so important. We need people to be able to trust the Supreme Court, criminal justice system, journalists, um, because that's where we get our information. And if half of the country can't trust them, we're going to not be able to coordinate when it comes to solving problems as they arise. The other one is it might just be that. So these institutions have more power than any one person, right? Like me as Corey Clark can't tell anyone to believe anything or do anything. But if I say like, oh, I'm a scientist, and I have a PhD and I'm at University of Pennsylvania and I publish this paper in this top tier scientific journal. This is one of the best science journals in all of science. You have to believe what I say. Like then you get a little bit more power. Right. And so it might be that people see these powerful institutions and then they see the people within those institutions as abusing the power and the influence of the institution to forward their own agenda. And then people might not like that because it kind of seems like cheating. Like we're all here to debate one another and try to figure out, you know, what's best for the country and each other. And if you, an individual, take advantage of your position of power in this powerful institution, um, you're you know, you're essentially like trying to manipulate other people um, illegitimately by by working through the influence this institution has. Um, so that's maybe one possibility. I don't exactly know why people don't like it when institutions for it. I mean, personally, so there was this there was this drama that happened recently. Um, I think it was the journal. Oh, I think it was the journal Nature, the Nature Springer family of journals. They endorsed Biden. And then this scholar studied the impact of that endorsement of Biden on mm. attitudes toward Trump and Biden. And it had little effect on attitudes toward Trump and Biden, but it did make people trust the journal less. 
And it made people trust scientists in general less. Yeah. And this became a bit of a, a, a drama because a lot of scientists, almost all of whom are left-leaning in psychology, those are the people that I know, almost all psychology professors are left-leaning. A lot of them did not like that science endorsed, or sorry, nature endorsed Biden. Um, and in that case, to me, it was probably because, well, now they're undermining the reputation of the entire institution of science. So they're using their position of power to try to make a political maneuver. And in the meantime, they're causing costing all of us legitimacy. Yeah. Um, but but they're in the in group, right? Like they're they're part of the group of people that's paying the price for the politicization. Um, yeah. So that's probably happening too, and and we saw that in our research. If this one sub organization, Get Outdoors Park Rangers of America, endorsed Biden or Trump, then people were less trans- trusting of all park rangers in general. So it has these like bleed out effects where it sort of infects the entire professional group when one subgroup of that of those people get involved in politics when that's not part of their stated mission you know their mission mm-hmm. is to you know inspire people to go to the national parks uh, do you think that you would have found similar results 30 years ago <laughs> in the in the sense that you could make the argument politicization has been consistent for a a variety of domains i mean technically speaking you could say um well if um i don't know let's say if if planned parenthood in in 1988 was saying that sexual orientation is largely genetically determined it's like oh Mm -hmm. they're they're being political by saying that because they're Mm -hmm. pro-gay rights or something like that Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like there was as much of this idea of politicization going on 30 years ago? I don't know what you think about it. So that's a good question. I don't know for sure. I have tried to find other similar studies on this. And I recall one that they covered some kind of political controversy surrounding the HPV vaccine, which I didn't even really know that there was controversy surrounding political controversy surrounding the HPV vaccine, but apparently there was. Um, and I guess that had undermined trust toward doctors when people saw it was being politicized. And that would have been, I don't know, when was the HPV vaccine becoming a big thing? Like 20 years ago, 15 years ago? Yeah, I I mean, I you can, no, no one's going to fact check this, but <laughs> okay. I'm sure it was. Sure. I, I believe it was, it was some time ago. <laughs> late 80s, early 90s. Probably. Oh, OK. So that would be a long time ago. Uh, yeah. Don't quote me on my description of the study, because obviously I don't have a great memory of it. But um, so it seemed like possibly this sort of effect was around then. But I think you bring up another important issue, which is there are also two other things happening. One is institutions don't want to frame their even their activities that almost everyone would say is like a political activity. They don't want to frame them as a political activity, right? They want to say, no, this is just the true thing. This is just the right thing. Um, So like when science endorsed Biden, they didn't say, oh, we just like, you know, we just like Biden. They said he's better for science, right? So they made it about the science and not about him per se. I mean, it was both. But in any case, you know, they try to make it seem like a non-political act. And then at the same time, People Which are also is arguably, less... and that's arguably disingenuous in the sense that. So what's really interesting about this topic to me is that um, there's always a certain amount of corpse speak going on, which is, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, nature endorsing Biden, and it almost it almost feels to me as as they're going wink wink. This mm-hmm. is objective. Mm-hmm. Like like the like they part of them part of the marketing campaign knows that there's a wink wink attached to that public message. I'm Do curious. <laughs> we'll see that maybe who knows? You know, it, it yeah. I'm I'm it makes me curious if people are reading into that. So mm-hmm. when 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 someone is saying you're politicizing by endorsing Biden. Are are people picking up on 
the disingenuousness or are mm. they or is it something is it just driven by their what they're saying well i think in the real in the real world it's it's probably often both so i'll say this you know even with all of the science that shows that conservatives are more cognitively rigid like on the one hand you'd be like oh this is a bunch of left-wing professors saying conservatives are bad people but a lot of them are just sincere believers and they're like no we're just literally reporting true information and that's it this is not a political statement it's a science statement right so like some people might be aware that there's a motivation going on, but a lot of people probably aren't. And the same when when nature endorses Biden, maybe some of them are like, yeah, we just really like Biden and we hate Trump and we have a lot of power. Let's use it. Um, but some of them might just be like, our interests are the interests of science. And we see one president who is likely to support, you know, the science uh, funding institutions. And that's good for us. So this isn't about politics. This is about science. Um and I don't know, like, it, it, so So there's that, like, on the side of the people doing the behavior, they're, of course, going to try to disguise any political maneuver as, no, this is really is part of our mission. Um, it's not just a political thing. This is, you know, we say we're doing, we're, like, take a, a um, like, a left-leaning um, news network, right? They're not like, oh, we're saying that we like this president or this president did this great thing and this president did this terrible thing because we're left leaning and we know our our viewers like us saying pro left things they say we're just reporting the news mm -hmm. we're just saying what's true <laughs> and like do any of them detect that there's a bias there or do they just literally think that's what they're doing i don't know mm -hmm. but then on the part of the audience the same thing's happening where if an institution is supporting my group uh, with a political maneuver, I'm less likely to see it that way. So we do see that even right-leaning people don't like when right-leaning institutions become politicized, but I'm less likely to think a right-leaning institution is doing something political than a left-leaning institution. And this goes both ways. So left-leaning people are more likely to think right-leaning institutions are doing political things and vice versa. So, so the audience is motivated to downplay the political aspect the the person spreading the message is going to try to downplay um which is interesting that people are still claiming it's happening all, all the time uh, i suggest people aren't doing a good job disguising their their behaviors as he's totally apolitical no we're just sticking with our mission of keeping americans safe or whatever you know like there was another paper looking at this with doctors you know surrounding the whole covid thing and 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 what treatments were effective and people doctors physicians political attitudes affected their beliefs about which treatments were the most effective mm. is that their sincere beliefs that were manipulated by their politics is it a political maneuver to say it in the first place oh, i'm going to go on this news show and say this thing works or this thing doesn't work um and get points with my political tribe you know yeah, uh, it's it's complicated. Well, we, we could boy, we could spend an entire other episode talking <laughs> yeah, about the, <laughs> the psychology of of COVID information processing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But you 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 also have some uh, interesting data on censorship um, mm -hmm. and political or sorry public attitudes towards censorship. Uh, so, to what extent does the general public endorse censoring? certain types of uh, information? Yeah, so I've asked that question a couple of times. It would be hard for me to put a number on it because I presumably would have asked this on like a continuous scale. But some subset of people think that scientific information is too dangerous and it and it needs to be censored. And some scientists support those attitudes too. But it's hard to know what they're talking about. So some scientists would endorse censoring, you know, even something like studying psychological differences between men and women. Um, but then there are other topics like we get back to COVID, like gain of function research. Well, how many people think we should not be doing gain of function research if it has potential to unleash deadly pathogens on the world and kill a lot of people? Mm -hmm. Probably a lot more people uh, would say we shouldn't be studying that. Um but there is some support for that. Um, and yeah, and we see some support for that among scientists as well, although I do think scientists are a little bit lower in, in their support for scientific censorship. Were, you, were there any interesting 
individual differences uh, that predicted, you know, what would be driving someone to believe that that keeping information from people is uh, beneficial. Mm. Yeah. Are you talking about the harm hypervigilance paper? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a couple of papers looking at this topic. Yeah. And the harm hypervigilance paper, we found that people who have a tendency to overestimate the harms of science are more likely to say we should be censoring science. So we presented people with a sets of controversial or potentially controversial findings. Um, one of them was, uh, you know, and mo- most of them or all of them were actual papers that had been published at one point, some of them had been retracted. Um, But for example, one of them was looking at uh, uh, mentorship between men and women um, and men and women mentees. And they found that like the woman-woman combo, those scholars were less productive than the man-man combo. Um, That paper got published and then retracted. And we had one subset of participants estimate like how many people would support all of these policy reactions to those findings. And another group just report whether they support various policy reactions, uh, policy reactions. And we see that people tend to overestimate all the bad things and underestimate all the good things. So people are more likely to say, oh, people will say that women shouldn't be allowed to mentor women anymore without this like specialized training that only women have to take or something like that. Um, Whereas not that many people support anything like that. Um, and people underestimate things like we should give women resources, uh, you know, to use at their own discretion to help them or whatever. Um, so we have these sets of findings that people consider harmful and or sorry, behaviors people consider harmful and behaviors people consider helpful. And on average, everyone overestimates the harm and underestimates the the benefits. But people who are particularly prone to overestimating the harms um, are more likely to say we should be censoring science. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had to summarize some of uh, some of the directions that your research is heading in, uh, it seems as though you're sort of converging on this idea that public institutions need to be very careful about their tactics, how they put out information. They need to. Uh, they need to understand a little bit about how people are going to process what they say about how they present it, whether or not they endorse a political candidate. Um, as we wrap up, could you talk about what you think public institutions need to do in order to maintain a uh, a, a trust with the public? Oh. <laughs> that's a hard question yeah. um yeah i i don't know i guess i would say stick to your your mission to the best of your ability uh don't feel the need to get tangled up in all of these political issues i have wondered like i would like to know i should read more about it but i would like to know what happened with the um the bud light fiasco like how many people made that decision was it driven by one person or a lot of people? Like how many higher ups approved that? Um, because, you know, whether or not you think it was the right thing to do or not, it, it's anyone would have the foresight to know, like, this is going to be a divisive issue. Um, but let's dive in anyway. Um, and the same goes for some of these policies that have been pushed by a lot of the Nature Springer Springer family of journals, they're saying, we're going to consider the potential harms of science before we decide whether to publish something. So they're saying, we're going to use our own moral assessments of science to determine whether something's worthy of getting published or retracted. Um, And that is a big change in comparison to what I think people thought they were doing, which was publish the best, most rigorous science that comes your way and reject the bad stuff. Um, And so these journals or other institutions make these sort of really public uh, maneuvers <laughs> um, and people are, you know, watching what's happening. And, and you know, there was also that controversy with the M&Ms, like they thought one of the M&Ms was obese or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what M&Ms was doing if they did anything at all, if they're just like, everyone likes our candies dancing. And then it became political somehow on accident. Um 
I actually think they probably handled that one quite well, right? What did they do? They're just like, if we're not talking my about it, they definitely did something right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So sometimes well, it, it things can be interpreted as politicized when they're really not, you know. Um, so that's always a risk an organization's going to be running. But I think, well, like, and you also just by bringing up that idea that that uh, journal journals or published publishing institutions are being very public about um, about favoring certain types of research that scares me because it it feels like that it, you could make the argument that that's definitely going to be perceived as a political as politicization by saying you yeah. know we're not it, it's what scares me about some of these uh, I know that the, the uh, JPSP, the Journal for Personality and Social Psychology. I hope, uh, I hope this is the specific journal, but they've, they've, I believe they've gone on record saying that they are going to favor certain types of papers over others. Mm, I wasn't that, aware of that one, but it, it seems perfectly pl plausible. Um, yeah. So with the case of the, the Nature Springer, and they're saying, you know, we're going to consider the potential downstream harms. It was very unclear. Like one thing they said was, research that has the potential to undermine the dignity of human social groups. And it's like, well, that's a very precise moral concern. Like, why not be concerned about research that has potential to cause nuclear war or, you know, research that has potential to uh, unleash a deadly virus or whatever it is. Like, there's so many things, so many potential harms to worry about. To select one particular one, it, it feels very political. It feels like, the editors at this journal share some political view and they think this is the most important thing. And so even though for the most part, we're going to focus on rigor on this one topic, no, we might reject stuff just because we think that it offends our personal moral sensibilities. And, and without even providing evidence for that matter, that some of these papers are, I mean, I don't know how you measure whether something undermines dignity, but like, at least it would be good to know, well, how do you measure it? What is your <laughs> quantify dignity for me? Uh, and then show how science can undermine that dignity. Because to me, like dignity might even be a completely non-empirical thing. It might be just like a moral, it might be a value. Like everyone deserves dignity no matter what we publish. Um, so it's it's quite bizarre. And, and yeah, I suspect that nature will, is, already has, and will continue to pay a reputational price for that. Um, and then if they do, then maybe another journal will come along and won't do that. And then maybe they'll, you know, outcompete nature. I guess we'll see. <laughs> well, thank you uh, for coming on. Uh, your work is, um, it has a very, uh, a very uh, timely flavor to it. Uh, you, you're definitely diving into questions that are um, are relevant today uh, rather than sort of, you know, some of some of the, uh, the 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 main staples of of psychology that are uh, sort of grounded in the past. E everything that you're looking at seems to be very uh, relevant, and so I I applaud you for that. Uh, thank you, you so much. That I go where the drama is. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, thank you so much Perhaps. for being on today, uh, Corey Clark. Thank you very much for having me. This was fun. Corey, visit CoreyJClark.com. That's C-O-R-Y-J-C-L-A-R-K.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs> <laughs>